With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Covenant Creation Ministries. Creation Ministries. Here is your host. Well, it's actually not Covenant Creation Ministries anymore. It's Bible Beacon Broadcast, but we are going to be dealing with the topic of Covenant Creation. My uh, my name is Derek Lambert. I'm your host today here on a wonderful sub, uh, Sunday evening, and uh, it's beautiful outside. The uh, weather is nice and chilly, and uh, I uh, called a dear friend up, Norman Voss, and he... Uh, he volunteered to come on here and bash me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How you doing, Norm? Well, I'm doing pretty good, Derek. How are you today? You sound like you're doing well with nice weather. Yes, sir. Doing really, really good. Um, for those of you who are listening in, I'm going to be traveling across town with the Bluetooth in the car. It was, uh, It's kind of you know, family things. We're, we're just crossing town to go head back home, so we're going to be doing... Uh, this radio broadcast while I'm Bluetoothing through the car, and uh, hopefully everyone can enjoy it, you know, just the, uh, un- it won't be as professional as it normally is, but it's just going to be Christians, two Christians talking about God's Word. All right, you want him to go with you, or stay here? So, what do you think there, Norm? What is it? Well, I think I'm ready whenever you are, and uh, if we need to pause or, or anything, you just let me know. Okay, Absolutely. Well, I've been hearing um, I've been hearing a lot of uh, talk online, and you know through the websites and people that I know personally. And uh, wh- what I think is interesting is that they view Genesis with only a wooden wooden stance. They interpret it literalistically, and they don't see maybe there's something more here. Um, I personally have I'm, I'm influenced on the propheticness of Genesis one, and it's so funny, Norm. That it's kind of a joke here, but me and uh, uh, Tim Martin, Tim Martin wrote me on on Facebook, and it was kind of funny because I had made a little snippet video where I said, uh, Terry Milton once said a famous quote, and I quoted him, right? And then he said, who's Terry Milton? <laughs> I, I didn't know I didn't know his name Milton properly Terry. in order. <laughs> Milton Terry. <that's laughs> yeah. I thought that was wonderful, you know? But, yeah, he said something about Genesis being um, – it wouldn't be crazy to have it in apocalyptic literature or uh, apocalyptic in nature, and wouldn't it seem fitting that the canon of Scripture opens with prophecy, if you will, and ends with prophecy? It just seemed uh, fitting to a Milton Terry who hasn't heard of covenant creation. He hasn't read Norm Voss. He hasn't read Tim Martin. He hasn't even – and he's kind of got this idea that, hey, it's prophetic in a sense. And so I was I was really interested to hear someone who wrote massive works on hermeneutics look at Genesis that way and see something more going on, you know. Well, uh, you know, uh, Milton Terry, you know, he's foundational. I know to Tim a lot of Tim Martin's work, and so Tim's just very very familiar with his work. I actually haven't read him. I've read excerpts of him, uh, you know, and I'm familiar with some of his work because Tim would discuss it as we were discussing things over the years. And so I, I understand that where he came from. So, uh, you know, he's pretty astute guy way back there over 100 years ago. That's what I've, uh, that's what I was told. And, uh, just the fact that I researched that quote and saw that he had thought this way, I was really, really uh, interested to find out more, if you will. So I ended up, um, you know, digging into his uh, post that Tim Martin had and started seeing some stuff and said, hmm, 
what is this Genesis uh, prophecy? You know, what is this whole thing in Genesis 1? Are we supposed to read it? This is going to be the question I'll ask you, Norm, because I know that you've got a lot more knowledge um, on this. But uh, let's, let's suppose people who are looking at Genesis with just a literal eye, um, how, when I say literal, Venice, I need to define my terms because we know literal doesn't necessarily mean wooden. And so when I'm looking at Genesis, starting with Genesis without the New Testament, is that a problem? Oh, I think so. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very difficult type of uh, literature, I believe, to really grasp at first glance. <laughs> That's probably an understatement and a half to say that. Uh, Genesis, you know, appears to be a, uh, you know, from our position, an inspired word that's describing the the origins of the universe, the way we would understand it, the physical of it. And even those that study it think it's the way that the ancients were understanding it, even though they believed that it was some possibly someone believed it was misguided. So there was a, a lot of confusion in my uh, my belief about the purpose and the intent of Genesis. I personally believe, and my premise would be, that it is prophetic. It is written from a, a prophetic point of view. It's a, it's a very, uh, I don't know if nuanced would be the word to use, but it's a very intriguing piece of literature that's written, in my estimation, from a, a position of uh, for telling prophecy, while at the same time telling about history. That doesn't make sense, does it, almost? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it makes sense a, now a, that I've been looking, but yeah. But, but the ideal that uh, it's pr uh, prophetic, I know a lot of people really don't want to buy into that uh, wholesale like maybe I have bought into it. And they'll buy into snippets. So they'll say, okay, uh, Genesis 3.15 is prophetic of Messiah. Some people see the Messiah there. In fact, the evangelical community as, as a whole would, would probably agree with that. But they don't see right. it prophetic in, I think, almost the totality of the, those writings. Uh, people think right. it's uh, based upon ancient myths, uh, ancient science, and so it wasn't really intended to be prophetic. It's the New Testament writers, if they pull things out of it that are uh, prophetic, uh, they're doing it uh, in a uh, hermeneutic way that's uh, not uh, kosher, <laughs> to use a word. Uh, they uh, they were they were inventing a style. They were maybe guided by the Holy Spirit, led them to. But that's not what the original uh, writers will intended. I would challenge that concept completely. I think Genesis was written entirely with the idea of portraying what is going to happen because this is what's happened in the past and this is what's going to happen in the future and it's telling that story and unfolding it in ways and stories that would be intriguing to the ancients and give them a sense of history while at, uh, and a a sense of war warning at the same time, and hope as well. Huh. Interesting. You know, that that brings up the idea that uh, I've been looking into lately, and there's a lot of stuff. This is, uh, I wanted, you know, the focal point, you know, really to hear what you had to say about some of these things. But um, isn't it interesting sometimes we look at a passage in Scripture and then we just we get a basic understanding of it, if you will. We see it, and we're like, oh wow, you know, God knew the end from the beginning. Wow, God is all all knowing, you know. But then, when you really look at the specifics of a statement like that, like He declared the end from the beginning, or God knows the end from the beginning. Well, the beginning language wouldn't that draw us right back to Genesis one and say, huh, in the beginning, hmm, beginning language, and so it makes us wonder. Is he declaring from the beginning the end? Because he says he, he declares the end from the beginning, and so it makes me wonder, huh, is it possible that he's declaring the end from the very beginning? That's the kind of question, well, just to be very fundamental, if you will. Yeah. 
Well, I think the literature is, uh, indeed is. That's what it's uh, it's constructed for. Now, when it was written, uh, I think there's debate on that, isn't there? Uh, when uh, <laughs> what group of people and what group of scribes and prophets wrote Genesis? You know, I would have my ideas on it. You know, my good friend Jeff would have his ideas on it. Uh, others may have uh, their ideas and. You know, as we've discussed before, that's an open question that uh, we're all trying to discern uh, and put the, our best ideals into it. Uh, mm-hmm. My my uh, feeling is is that it's written from Second Temple period uh, prophecy because it parallels and masks ex- that concept and that redemption and that exile, and so it it basically gives us an idea of where the mentality of the writers were coming from. And so it's either late uh, into the first temple or it's late uh, or it's early uh, second temple. My belief is with the story of the uh, Tower of Babel in there, that's a story that's really showing the destruction of the temple. I think it's written after 600 B.C. But that's that's just my opinion, and that's just an educated opinion of one among thousands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness, so I, that know, gives you a I know, I've seen it. Sorry. So that gives you a framework, of, in my mind, of what they were trying to do. Second Temple period, the writers were constantly looking for a deliverance from their exile into the nations, from their captivity to really bad Judaism uh, government by the priest and corruption. And so that whole period was just constantly conveying the idea of deliverance. And uh, at the root of it was uh, there was an insight that the law, Mosaic law was really, in effect, a problem. You see that in Genesis chapter three, I believe, extensively, where it says uh, that you know the man would earn his, uh, you know, uh, you know, it would live by the works and the suffering of it, and that would be uh, he would be toiling. That's a picture of the works ethic that he would, when he was cast out of the garden, that because of the law, he was going to be living uh, under that works uh, mentality. And so mm. uh, I think that's where uh, that writing writing is coming from thematically. And here's the problem. Scholars, modern scholars, and they're, they're, they understand that there's some issues going on there, but I think a lot of these modern scholars... Uh, don't buy into that idea. They think, well, it's just a piece of ancient Near East literature reflecting the Jewish attempt to write uh, about history using borrowed themes from the uh, uh, Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and it may be a polemic against them, but it's still borrowing themes, and it had no intention. So the New Testament people when they uh, read it, they were write, they were reading into it things that really weren't there. And again, my premise is I challenge that. I challenge it strongly. I think it's just overwhelming that the uh, prophecy is too strongly embedded in Genesis all throughout it to uh, to have been written that way. But that's just my uh, my uh, discernment after having studied it for several years now. Well, I'm glad you at least uh, voiced, you know, your opinion on it, and uh, and I'd like to see that be, you know, fleshed out along the way because th- this is an interesting thing. I did not know, kind of like when I first came to um, understand fulfilled eschatology and came to understand fulfillment, I thought it was, you know, one foot fits all in the in the shoe, you know, and uh, when I got in there, I realized there's sandals, there's shoes, there's high heels, there's you know, there's all this stuff, and it, you know, I was like, wow, there's a lot of different takes, and, and you know, there's just a lot of different things, and that's the same thing you see in, uh, if you will, quote-unquote, orthodox Christianity, or uh, historical church, you know, uh, positions, where there's differences, even with Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic and all that, but when I came to Covenant Creation, I saw that there were more in common, though, 
than not, in a lot of ways, there's a lot more in common than there is not in common in terms of, uh, you know, other fields of eschatology or fields of theology and stuff. Um, even though there's differences, you can get along. And I like that idea that everyone can kind of, you know, come at this with an educated guess or continue to study and change. And when we're looking at Genesis, I'm going, I can't even look at it at the same. I mean, I cannot look at Genesis the same anymore, Norm. I'm, I'm like reading these works and I'm reading the New Testament. And, uh, you know, one of the things that interests me, because I know you, you did your six days of creation on the um, Covenant Creation uh, Conference. For anyone who's listening um, and you haven't heard that, you, it's a must hear. I was, I was listening to it today uh, with my wife in the car, and it's just a fabulous work. Augustine had an awesome thought. We were talking about that last night with a couple brothers over the phone. And I thought it was interesting that in Matthew 13, he talks about the seven parables of the seed sower, if you will. And I thought it was amazing to see how they progressed. And in the middle of uh, the parables, on the fourth parable he gives, he actually stops for a second and says, this is what the prophet says. And he did this at the earlier of the chapter, but this is what the prophet says. And he talks about people not being able to see and so forth. But uh, he speaks in parables of things that have been hidden or kept secret since the foundation of the world. So it, it makes me wonder if, you know, for a long time these people didn't see, because it said the prophets were looking to see the things that you guys were, you know are now seeing. Christ is speaking in parables, and he tells them why he's speaking in parables, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought it was interesting, these seven um, parables, and then we have seven days of creation, you, you have, uh, you know, the seven churches, all these sevens, it kind of makes me think of the chiastic structure in Genesis 1, you know, uh, and then chiastic structure in the book of Revelation. It just throws me all over the place now. So, I mean, oh, um, just, Matthew, just, Matthew is well well documented as being very um, very heavily chiastically uh, uh, developed. Wow. It's huh. very, very Jewish in that regard, you bet. Let me ask you a simple question, just to make it simple, because this is a, you know, we're just hanging out. Today we're hanging out. It's a wonderful Sunday, you know. What what brought you to see um, Genesis prophetically, and, and like what kind of things, if you will? Because I know it wasn't just a one verse fits all, or yeah. you know, hey, oh man, I just saw this. I know there was a lot to it, and it took time and gradual prayer, meditation, study of God's yeah. word, and so forth. But what what would you it's say? It's one, one step at a time. One step at a yeah. time, and you know, it, it starts with covenant eschatology, and when you start figuring out. Uh, covenant eschatology you start figuring out uh, revelation if you have a curiosity about yourself if you have read Genesis and you're curious about Genesis things start clicking for you uh, when you read uh, Revelation especially Revelation 21 Uh, you recognize wow there's a lot of uh, a lot of parallels with Genesis going on here in Revelation 21. And it just almost jumps right out at you. Uh, then if you read Revelation uh, chapter 12 about the woman fleeing uh, in the serpent, well, that story is obviously taken uh, and uh, built upon from Genesis uh, chapter 3. You see that theme and it just becomes obvious these little patterns start building together and you and that's what preterists do they put all these patterns together and a lot of people say oh you're overdoing it you're just seeing a pattern here you're seeing a pattern there you're just uh you're seeing symbols here well if you don't do that you probably aren't reading it the right way uh, that would be my observation. If you don't investigate almost everything that has the opportunity or, uh, or the potential to be symbolically understood from the Jewish standpoint, you really may just be leaving a, uh opportunity uh, closed that you should investigate. And I mm-hmm. know that makes a lot of people. I know that makes a lot of people com- uh, uncomfortable. It makes a lot of preterists uncomfortable. Well, you're seeing symbols everywhere. You're seeing the heavens and earth as people everywhere. Well, you know, you better look at it that way first, and then you go and look and say, well, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, the, uh, 
Psalms 19, uh, there are 18 in those areas, where when it talks about the heavens and earth, are you really sure that they don't have people in mind still? Uh, you have to ask yourself and keep that open question for you, even though it looks to be literal. Well, obviously, it's built with using literal symbols. It's, mm-hmm. that's obvious. Yeah, everybody can recognize that as using, but what is the intent? What is that mystery background that might be hidden there or revealed there if you read it uh, symbolically as you know the patterns have been? Now, uh, there sure. may not be much there, but there may be more there than you would suppose if you read it literally and woodenly. Uh, and so you should always have an eye open and look at it. And I would say never close that door on it as a potential. Because uh, I know preterists get in this debate, well, not everything is on that says uh, heavens and earth is literal. Keep the door open. Be ready to examine it. It never hurts to keep a door open and looking at it. Wow. So some of your some of your um, investigation that also helped was scripture um, in terms of uh, the canon we we have, but also extra biblical documentation, understanding how they thought in lots of ways. And sometimes you have to be careful of that because you know you might be reading a Pharisee or you know you know what I mean. You might be reading some type of uh, literal um, hermeneutic that a Jew might be saying. Hey, Jesus was not the Messiah because he didn't bring the actual kingdom or physical kingdom or whatnot. We understand that was spiritual. So that's the kind of point I think you're making there. And what's some of the stuff that you've seen that, uh, that kind of throws a a loop with it being, uh, you know, maybe prophetic. Do you have anything in mind? Well, you know, uh, kind of ask that question again here, uh, Derek, you mean when I see things prophetic, uh, what would, what do you mean by throwing a loop? Like, uh, do you, do you um, to make it simple, do you, what literature or maybe verses or uh, if it's in the Epistle of Barnabas or uh, the Book of Enoch yeah. that kind of helps you with this uh, understanding prophecy in Genesis? Well, will, okay, Genesis that, uh, we'll, we'll get into this. We've probably discussed this before. Uh, the Epistle of Barnabas was eye-opening for me when I started reading it. Uh, the epistle, or the uh, book of Enoch, the different writings of book, uh, attributed to the book of Enoch with the, the different names, the book of uh, Jubilees, those three right there, uh, as I've said before, if you read those three books, they'll keep you busy for a long time just investigating the, their uh, how they contributed to, uh, especially Enoch and uh, Jubilees, contributed to the understanding of the first century Christians. They called it uh, scripture. Uh, they would consider Enoch scripture. Now, their ideal of scripture would be different than our ideal of scripture. They would read scripture as liter- literature that's uh, that's good for training, edification, etc., like that, and building up. They may not have it nuanced the way evangelical Protestants or Catholics have it. So when you Mm. see the word scripture, you have to uh, put yourself in their shoes. What were they saying when they were saying Enoch is scripture? Jude quoted scripture uh, from Enoch and that sort of stuff. Uh, They have a little bit uh, different nuance, but they attributed it. They they, uh, relied on it, and they drew on it. now we we can overread into that obviously, uh, but they still had uh, Christianity in the first century. Uh, de- in my opinion, depended heavily upon Enoch and Jubilees. I think uh, the Epistle of Barnabas uh, illustrates that. I think Second Peter illustrates the it pulled heavily from uh, the Book of Enoch. Uh, it, uses a lot of that same language and everything. It heavily influenced those uh, folks and because it was heavily messianic. And mm. you mentioned something earlier, uh, Derek, about the the way people read parables and that Jesus said, well, you know, they don't have eyes to hear, or eyes to see and ears to hear. The mysteries of it, uh, Paul talked about the mysteries being revealed. Because it was and is a veiled language, it still is. People mm-hmm. think, well, AD seventy, 
Christ came, everything is uh, revealed now. No, it's not, unfortunately. We still have to read it with spiritual eyes. We still can read it just like the Pharisees were reading it. We all know that, that that's, the vast majority of Christians still read it woodenly, uh, mm-hmm. way too much. doesn't mean that they don't get some things right. Some things are pretty plain. Uh, treat your brother right, you know, live like Christ. Thankfully, that a lot of those lessons are really clear. But, you know, some of the underlying mysteries, the revelation of the fulfillment, the coming cl- uh, the close of the uh, ages with the opening of the new ages, that was mystery to a, uh, a lot of them. Even though in the Gospel of John, you see they were looking for Messiah. They say, here's Messiah. It's, uh, uh, and so they were looking for Messiah. They knew that he was supposed supposed to be arriving. And so they were heavily invested. You wouldn't have been invested in that if you hadn't been studying and reading, you know, uh, with uh, eyes looking for it. But they still had to be brought around. Christ still had uh, difficulty uh, making his case, and it took a long time from the resurrection to uh, to bring them, some of them uh, to see. <laughs> I agree, especially after reading uh, Martha and, and you know, uh, Lazarus, you know, where I know that in the last day he will raise, be raised in the resurrection. I am the resurrection, Martha. <laughs> yeah, it's right. pretty significant, you know, totally, yeah. totally yeah. misconstrued ideas being tossed around that day. It was just bad religion. Yeah. And uh, that, that just makes me wonder. It's like, okay, um, we're looking at Genesis too. They have a, they have a, you know, misunderstanding of these other things, the kingdom being physical, the resurrection being physical, uh, all these other things are looking with, you know, if you will, non-spiritual eyes, but is it possible that a lot of this propaganda, if you will, of Genesis being, uh, you know, looked at physical rather than uh, symbolic and prophetic in nature is also uh, going on. And I think that that's also point of uh, Christ is saying these things have been kept secret. Since the foundation yeah. or beginning of the world, which makes sense to me if you understand world, if you understand mm-hmm. foundation and all that kind of stuff. You have to understand Greek stuff. I mean, you don't have to understand it. You can go look these words up. It's not like you have to be a scholar to look this and figure yeah, we it have, out. We have, lots of, we have lots of tools nowadays to help us. Exactly. So that's what kind of keeps throwing out in my mind. And I wanted to throw this out to you because this is just uh, – it's just a proposition. It's a hi- hypothetical, you know, idea here, and I think there's something here. But I, I don't know if you saw. I posted it in one of the rooms. I said um, uh, it was actually Luther and I. We had a conversation. Luther G. Williams and I were talking one night, and uh, I said, you know, isn't it interesting that in Genesis one one, it doesn't mention the seas. It just talks with the head. Yeah, of the I, I saw that little discussion on y'all. So I thought that was very what do you interesting. Think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it would tie in with my my thinking that they already were spirit led and understanding uh, the Gentile mm-hmm. uh, predicament and the uh, the bonding of them. Uh, so I'm I'm not surprised. Uh, a lot of people say, well, no, that's just uh, the spirit of God uh, put that you know would put that in there, and that's just the way it works. I tend to think that the Spirit of God was had already enlightened some of these prophets. Uh, you know, exactly. you can't read some of you can't read some of the, this literature without recognizing that they understood that they uh, uh, you know, and they were prophesying these things. They repeated these themes over and over and over. The abundance of the seas will come to you. And what was that uh, Isaiah? I'm trying to remember. Is it sixty or? It was one of those uh, late chapters there that the abundance yeah. of the Gentiles and the seas would come would be would come uh, to you, uh, Israel, and so uh, that those concepts were out there. I get dismayed at the idea that people th- still think, uh, and preterists especially, think that these folks uh, did not comprehend what they were writing. I just disavow that. I think they understood. Now they they looked intently because they didn't see it all, 
It's just like Hebrews said, they were looking to that far country, that new that country from a distance, but they had they they looked toward that promise and they were seeing it uh, and they were writing about it. I think they had an understanding of it, but it wasn't for their time. Uh, right. you know, it was to be, uh, but they they understood a lot of what they're writing. I don't buy into this things uh, that. Uh, the uh, the evangelical saying, well, they just wrote the hand of God came down and wrote it on a piece of paper. Uh, he used God's people. He used people that were filled with the Spirit that uh, were grasping these things, and uh, and they were putting it down, and they were complaining about the the law. They were complaining about the problems that they had. And they saw a deliverer, and the deliverer was being revealed to them, uh, through the Spirit, Amen. you know, and uh, to me, that's the great story of the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament. Is that pattern and that theme continued for hundreds of years until the Messiah did arrive, and that is one of the great testimonies about God there is. Amen. I, I agree. I, I was wondering, you know, just just a thought, because you always have people go, well, listen, you can't do exegesis in Genesis 1. And so, and it's just been on my heart, you know, uh, to, to one day, obviously, do some type of uh, documentation, if you will, on Genesis chapter 1. And in order to do Genesis chapter 1 properly and in, in with justice, if you will, would be to use the information we have later that shines on it because you wouldn't really grasp these things if you didn't have the, you know, revealed revelation of these things. It's like trying to understand, as a matter of fact, it's almost like trying to understand the book of Revelation, but not having your Old Testament. You see what I'm saying? And so there's no yeah, way for you to right. really grasp what's going on. And then the reverse right. could be done on Genesis, you see? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think you apply logical thinking to what you have, and that's part of the uh, examination that we do. Uh, modern scholars, uh, I would we call them liberal scholars, tend to look at it, and they are still reading it woodenly, and they don't see uh, the supernatural, spiritual uh, continuation. They see it just as, oh, these... New Testament guys were just taking these things out of uh, context from and misapplying what these Old Testament writers were writing about. I think that's the biggest uh, farce that has been perpetrated on Christians this last uh, 40 years uh, in uh, modern biblical scholarship that there is. Uh, I, you go to biblical theology school, they're going to basically, you're going to get that teaching. You will not hear anybody that almost when you get in certain certain levels that will believe in the supernatural providence of God it's all right uh, they kind of constructed it and uh, that and I just I just uh, I have a problem with it I understand how they think I understand how that process develops but I think because they're not trained in preterism like we are we have been given a gift and I, I try to say that with humility, and uh, uh, that we're not, you know, I don't know how to put it, but if you grasp preterism, grasp uh, covenant eschatology, grasp covenant creation, I think you've been gifted with something from God, with an open eyes that Jesus is mm -hmm. talking about there in Matthew, uh, about those that can see. It's an ongoing human condition that will always be with us. It's not the the inability to see. God brings those that have that ability. He blesses them and he lets them uh, share and keep teaching and reminding people. I think just as the pro prophets wrote it down, I think you need people that are, can still see and can still read uh, and uh, continue to uh, keep uh, things uh, in perspective. Uh, there's yeah. probably a lot needs to be said about that, but that's kind of my uh, kind of where I'm I, I go, I'm heading on the way I look at the scriptures. Right now, I know we we've had a talk before uh, briefly on um, 
day six, being made in the image of God. And we know the epistle of Barnabas, he looks at that and uh, uh, he does something special with the day six. You know, he does something interesting. And I thought that was really noteworthy that the epistle of Barnabas really goes into detail pertaining to day six yeah. on that being Oh, that Barnabas, yeah, he know? does. He jumps all over that. He jumps all over Genesis one twenty six in that area. And he says he was talking about Christ when he says us, let us make man in our image. And he said, and that was, uh, and he's talking about us as the one that is going to be made in that image because we are going to be made recreated like in the first mm. time. We're going to be recreated. And he that was that's that's not something that I've dreamed up. That stuff was written there in the first century by Christians. That's the way they were looking at, uh, and I believe were reading the scriptures and understanding it. They're reading it in covenant creation eyes, covenant eschatology eyes. They're reading it that way, and that's the reason it got kicked out because. Those uh, there's a lot of people started drifting away from that reading it. They were starting to read it like the Pharisees again, and mm. uh, not maybe the Pharisees in the best word, but a legalism uh, and, and uncomfortable with it. And so we lost that ability. Uh, it hadn't been lost, but it's been uh, <laughs> it's been difficult. Yeah. That that makes me also kind of just uh, this question goes out, uh, obviously to you, but out to those who aren't covenant creationists but do believe in covenant eschatology. And, and this might be a good response for you to uh, jump on this because when I came to covenant eschatology, just to give you a little backdrop, I I realized fulfillment and I realized the time statements and all these things they definitely fitted into a certain time. And so once I realized these things were, you know, pressed into a certain time and the understanding of apocalyptic literature and all these things began to make sense to me, heavens and earth for covenants, people, uh, you know, it, where in the world, just just the thought, or how do they, they try to get around, and I think it has to do with that uh, second Peter issue that they always try to bring up, but I'm wondering, how how do you start with a literal physical heaven and yet don't get a non-physical heaven at the end, heaven and earth, if you will, but a covenant heaven and earth in the end. Because they start at Moses, but they don't want to start at Genesis. So I'm wondering how in the world do they try to, you know, get around that in Genesis? And, and You know what I mean? Well, I, you're probably asking the wrong person because I'm kind of cynical. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just okay. open, open their eyes because of presuppositions. That's a human nature that we have. And we protect ourselves from that. We protect ourselves to keep ourselves from having to maybe encounter what we might consider a faith-altering uh, uh, investigation. We haven't, we haven't really reckon, allowed ourselves to uh, enter that. There's probably lots of different reasons, but... Bottom line is, is uh, people will be bring their presuppositions to the, the discussion, and sometimes they're defeated before they ever get off the ground because of those uh, they have a job that precludes them from being able to do this. They have uh, a faith that's been built upon uh, this, and they can they can compartmentalize part of it, but they can't. They think, well, if I I can take covenant eschatology, but if I go further, I'm really breaking the hermeneutic laws that I've been raised and brought up with, and I better not do that. Uh, you know, I, I better keep a, one foot uh, in the water, toe in the water in covenant eschatology, but I better, better keep the rest of the body out of that. And so there's all sorts of psychological reasons. There's all sorts uh, that a person can use it. It just boils down to presuppositions are at the nature at the the point of investigating some people just will not allow themselves to and we do have to be careful 
because we do have to give people grace and understanding on that. Uh, I said I was cynical. Yeah, I'm cynical, but I have to watch that. I have to uh, realize that, uh, you know, I've been there, so I needed somebody to be graceful to me in the past. Yeah, I've experienced that quite often myself with uh, people, you know what I mean, and and myself as well, being, uh, you know, very, very close-minded on the things especially when it came down to, you know, coming in eschatology. When I first heard it, I was laughing. Like, these these uh, souls, you know, like, I had a really bad take. They think that he came back? How stupid, you know? Like, that's really how mm-hmm. I thought. And, yeah. and the Lord worked right. on me because the Lord himself said he was going to. And I said, oh, goodness, if I'm going to believe anyone, i got to believe Jesus Christ, you know, and his word. And, uh, you know, I actually came to realize, hey, he did come back. He did return. But, um, yeah. Well, yeah, we're we're playing with our our world view, and what is a world view? It's the way that we structure things in our mind, how they work, and we don't want to lose that structure. And so, we ch- if we uh, over challenge ourselves sometimes, well, you know, Derek, we've seen people that they haven't handled it well, and they'll lose their faith. And that's extremely sad too. So yeah. some people protect some people protect themselves, uh, you know, and so they'll keep God in a certain size box for themselves. And that's not being very generous on my part. But you know, I'm just trying to explain as best humanly as I can why our human nature tends to do that. Yeah, I can understand that. Like. Now I'm, I'm I'm more generous to to letting scripture you know t- to consider if you will to actually consider possibilities that I never considered before uh, because I never really understood them I'll be honest I never really understood them before and it could be just a lack of maybe being able to fit things in some people are very uh, very very easily seeing you know, coming to eschatology because Christ makes it very clear you know. Uh, I will, you know, return, and this generation will not pass away. You have not gone through all the cities of Jerusalem, some of you standing here, that kind of stuff. And that's really clear language for some people. And they get to Genesis, and they're like, hold on, I've been taught this is physical my whole life, a physical, actual heavens, earth idea, you know, of of a a creation account. And then they see this covenant creation thing, and they go, oh, no, 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 I can't accept that. You know what I mean? I cannot accept that. And there's multiple reasons behind why they don't want to accept it. But I began to realize that there is all sorts of evidence throughout Scripture. And there, I think one of the issues we hear people say is, hey, no, 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 you've got to look at Genesis and go from there. Um, you know, you've got to look at Genesis, interpret it as you see it now, and then from there you can go, you know what I mean, uh, elsewhere. And, and you can't tie in anything later and try and make it say something else in Genesis 1. I don't, I don't see that. Uh, I see a whole lot of stuff coming up, you know, with those parables, for example, Matthew 13, and he's revealing secret things from the foundation of the world, like really interesting language and just ties in a whole lot of stuff. You know, the genealogies in Matthew 1, um, how, you know, uh, the six water pots in John's day and just kind of creation language, you know. Yep. Well, you know, I, I wish we could find a, a few hard drives from the first century Christians that had their uh, database of uh, uh, discussions and uh, articles and things. It really would be interesting to help us figure out this stuff, wouldn't it? I'm being facetious. <laughs> I, I just lost it in there. I'm sorry. What were you saying? Oh, I said I was hoping that someday we'll run across and discover uh, the hard drives of some of these first century Christians uh, and find their <laughs> database of dis- discussions and things and uh, that we uh, because we, 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 we miss so much. How do you recreate the way people thought and the way they were uh, trained and the way they brought up with the limited amount of writings that we have? I mean, it's a challenge and a half uh, because uh, – as we know people now, uh, people are all different, so everybody would have a little different perspective from it. We just get a few different perspectives. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a real challenge to recreate the hermeneutics that was driving the first earliest Christians. And so uh, uh, it, it's, an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing challenge. Well, sometimes when I read Paul, for example... 
I, I, you know, I can't help but wonder, did he have Norman Voss's six days of creation conference on audio or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, a lot of people don't even uh, believe Paul wrote all those, uh, the, uh, his letters. So uh, that's the other thing is uh, sometimes people are uh, are not sure who wrote what, when they wrote it and everything. So you, you get every uh, every aspect of uh, imagination uh, t- talking about it. And so it gets to be challenging to sort out this stuff and argue with people. Uh, and But... Uh, that's the reason my six days of creation are taken from that era, from the first century. And so that's what I try to do. I try to go back, recreate the mindset by reading their literature and seeing what led them to that. And that's the conclusions I've come to. Biblical scholars nowadays would differ with that. They would, you know, they're going to they're going to put a different spin on it, uh, depending upon now, their presuppositions. Wh- what about these animals, though? Like, don't you think that there are clear animals that it's talked about? I mean, isn't it real animals in Genesis 1? <laughs> yeah, of course, just like the sun and the moon and the stars are all real, but they're motifs, you know, used for literature. We know what motifs are. We're we're all trained in, written, uh, in reading literature, American uh, literature and European literature and the development of literature, how the the different things and the symbols are supposed to, you know, you're supposed to understand in literature what motifs and symbols mean and how they were used. We do it now. Why can't they do it back then? They just do it very aggressively, and uh, we're trying to come in and say, no, you can't do that rule. Use that rule. You you have to be uh, adhering to our uh, Protestant evangelical literal ideal of it, so you can't have that. Who are we to tell them what they can can't do? <laughs> you know, but they right. did use real literal uh, examples. You look at the universe, you look at its all. You can't help but exclaim the uh, the power of God and everything, and you can use it to tell a story. That doesn't mean that the sun and the stars weren't real to them. It just means that they frame it and use it uh, in symbolic, and they picked up on those symbols and carried them forth over hundreds of years very consistently using it, uh, using it uh, in those uh, systematic uh, means. Now, did they right. have real animals in the, uh, consideration? Yeah, but, you know, the old pistol bull of Barnabas, he came around and he said, well, the Jews had a problem. They took Moses literally when Moses didn't mean it to literal. And he says, that's the same problem uh, that he meant it spiritual. That's a first century Christian saying that. And people would say, nah, that's the reason we kicked out Barnabas. He didn't know. We want to take it literal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, we do see that. We do see that. Um, I don't know, you know well enough church history to be able to tell when or what. Uh, pertaining to, you know, how they're like, do not eat, uh, what is it, eat meat on Fridays? Or is it like fish and stuff that is allowed to be eaten? But I'm not sure exactly. But they have dietary laws, even in the Roman Catholic Church. It's like, what's going on here? (laughs) Well, it makes you start asking a bunch of hard questions. Why was there such a problem? Why did these early Christians really have such a, a venue against the law? against uh, Judaism as it was being practiced. And you, if you're a, a really serious uh, student, you start asking, I need to answer to some of those questions better. Uh, why did they, how did that happen, that there's a section of Judaism out there that was very adherent, like pharisaical, that believed in the strict rules? You have these uh, Essene groups that were, Strict, but they were different type of strictness. They had different uh, concepts, and we have these Sadducees that had their own little concepts, and then Christians come along, and they seem to kind of developed out of nowhere with this getting rid of Judaism uh, concept. Well, I think it's because the law was a problem for centuries, and that was part of the tension amongst the Jews, and the reason they were looking for Messiah. 
that's the reason I think Genesis was written from that perspective, as the law is a problem, but it was a gradual process for it to, uh, it had to play its course out. Paul kind of says it was a tutor that was given to him for a while until they outgrew it, you know. Mm. Interesting. Makes me think all over the place. That's, I mean, this this is uh, this is just amazing to see this uh, from a whole new light. I used to be just kind of trapped in one way of thinking on this, and now that I'm seeing all this stuff, I'm going, wow, this is amazing. I saw an ad. It's funny you said that, that we use the same type of uh, literature today as they did then. They just were more aggressive. And I saw this ad about Corona, and I don't know if you guys have seen this, uh, for anyone who's listening. On Corona, it says, uh, you know, uh, that pretty much Corona will light up some beaches, but there's people behind or around a campfire. They're not even on, I'm coming in. Um, they're not even on a beach. They're camping. And here they are with the, with the Corona, the Corona represented light in the commercial and it lit up their beach, you know, and their beach was also where, whatever they were doing, whether it be on a beach, whether they're camping out, whether mm-hmm. this or that, so the corona represented, hey, light up your time. And there's a bonfire, you know, light, if you will, literally there. So I'm wondering, you know, if we're looking at this, if it's kind of pointing to multiple levels or multiple dimensions, if you will, you're seeing obviously physical elements. They're using it to give you a different context. But at the same time, um, these elements, you know, are there and they do point to a creator. Uh, how he did that, I don't think the Bible goes into that kind of detail, you know? Yeah, what, he rolled that, that out the heavens really, like a... It recognizes it, yeah. Exactly. So what, he rolled out the the heavens like a, what is it, a, <clears throat> like a scroll? I mean, did, yeah. is that really what happened? Uh, so you, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you've got you to you know, use some good common sense on some of that stuff and recognize... Uh, that, yeah, these people back there—they weren't—they were gifted writers. <laughs> they were—they were writing. Ex- they were—these were the the top one percent of the uh, the educated class writing this stuff. They were the trained scribes and prophets, trained in their probably different courts of uh, and uh, studies, uh, and be able to write that type of literature. They had—they had developed literature uh, very interestingly, and so. You know, we we don't understand, but if if you, uh, because we we think they're simpletons and they weren't, you know, they had very well crafted skills. I definitely believe that, especially after seeing how patterns of numbers are used, phrases are mm-hmm. used, uh, stories are used, and there's so many levels in which this has just become more clear to me that covenant creation is uh, we're on to something here. We and what I love about yeah. it is. It's still at its birthing or its infant stage, if you will. Me, you know, it, it's very young, and in fact, it's not young in terms of uh, you know actually existing in history. But what I mean is, as within the church, we don't really see covenant creation, you know, uh, booming just like we don't see preterism booming as much as you do your, you know, futurist camps or whatever it may be. But what I think is interesting is even covenant creation is even limited beyond that, and so uh, seeing this starting to grow, it's interesting to see we get two and three people who are joining the the, uh, the group and learning about this covenant creation are fascinated because they're seeing this stuff without necessarily trying to hold on to preconceived notions. They're realizing this stuff throughout the scripture, and it's growing. It's growing at a mass... Uh, it's really starting to grow. We've got a lot of people. I almost get a person or two each week to consider some of the things uh-huh. I bring up, and they're really convinced that there's something more... Yeah. They don't fully understand everything, and uh, I don't either. But I'm I'm really, yeah. <clears throat> really seeing so much. I I see too much of it to not, you know, you know, go this route. I see too much of it to not accept that this is reality of what the scriptures are portraying. Can I explain it the best? No, um, but I can give enough evidence to show that there's good reason to think, you know, something else yeah. is going on in Genesis chapter one. You know. Well, part of the problem we have is we're we're trying to explain something that is not simple. There are some simple things that we need we can understand, and I, as I said at the beginning of this uh, program, some of those simple things are the the understanding of what God has called us to do through Jesus, 
and to put him on, to put on that spirit, to put on and uh, to emulate Jesus and God. And that, and thank goodness, those are some of the things that are, are easily graspable. Some of the things that are more difficult to grasp uh, are are going to be difficult for people because they require time. They require right. a lot of time, and you have to have a passion to study for that. You have to be intrigued with that, uh, and not everybody is going to be able to uh, get to that point. And so part of it is developing a culture of uh, explaining these things more simply as we go on without glazing people's eyes over. That will be a uh, <laughs> one of our challenge. That will be one of our challenges. Well, we're on we're on the mission, you know. We're trying to get that done and you know, it's we're, we're going to make it happen. That's it's just something we have to flesh out like we did preterism. Some people are confused and mm-hmm. they're this and that, but now it's become a lot more shaped and covenant creation has began to really take mm-hmm. place and people are realizing, "Oh, wow, this makes sense. I'm glad you could explain it." So, we're going to have to do that and focus on doing that even more in covenant creation. Uh I just yeah, I know there's some people our narrative, who, we've got to keep our narrative simple and to the point, and that can be built upon from there, and so that people can grasp that narrative. We need to do the same mm-hmm. thing in covenant eschatology. Covenant eschatology requires a narrative that challenges people, and we need to keep it simple and not as threatening as we sometimes do. We don't need to throw in everything that challenges them and uh, threatens them. Let them handle mm-hmm. it. Uh, and uh, ast- you know, We need to be astute in the way we do that. I agree. <laughs> well, Norm, thank you so much for coming on, man. Best. Well, I'm glad to do, uh, do that. I like, enjoyed this Sunday afternoon little chit-chat here. And so, Derek, I appreciate it again, uh, the effort, and uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to visit with you. Absolutely. Let me um, make make note before you go. If anyone's interested to see, and trust me when I say there's a lot more in-depth, to anything he said on on the show with me, uh, you de- definitely want to hear his six days of creation at the conference, uh, Covenant Creation Conference. Um, that is is amazing uh, pr- presentation. But go to Death Is Defeated. It's Death Is Defeated. Dot Ning N I N G. Dot com. Uh, Death Is Defeated. Dot N I N G. Dot com. And uh, all you have to do is go into the blogs and just type in Norman Voss. That's uh, N-O-R-M-A-N, Voss, V-O-S-S, and you'll catch his stuff. He has written articles, blogs, and he's well, well written. Uh, he may not think so, but I do. <laughs> and he's got some really good stuff. But uh, definitely go check him out there. How? What's uh, another way that they can reach you, uh, if there's email or any other way that they can contact you to find out more? Oh, they can message me on Facebook. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I guess you can find me that way. I, I you know, haven't uh, I get a few people that uh, look me up every once in a while that way. Um, you know, and uh, people are welcome to e- email me. Uh, I have an email address. You're welcome to uh, send me, shoot me an email. That's Norm B V. That's N O R M B as in boy, V as in Victor at yahoo.com. Norm B V at yahoo.com, and I'd be glad to entertain people's questions and. Uh, you know, but there's we have a great resource of people out here uh, in preterism and covenant creation uh, now that uh, besides myself, and so we're we're blessed with lots of people that can discuss these issues with different people. Amen. Well, God bless you, brother. Thanks so much for uh, getting on here and taking your time yeah. out of your evening on a weekend when you work so much, and uh, we will look forward to you next time. Well, thank you again, and uh, uh, you have a great weekend, and you and your family enjoy yourselves this evening. You too, brother. God bless you. All right. Sure. Bye. Bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's Bible Beacon broadcast talking about covenant creation in uh, Genesis chapter 1 prophecy. And uh, we didn't go in depth, but we will be going in depth further on, especially when we plan the program out a little further uh, ahead. We'll get some of the actual scriptures to go through in particular in detail and deal with these issues and kind of show you guys 
I guess, you know, let you uh, in behind the veil if you can uh, handle it or if you can uh, bear what's being spoken of there and actually see what's going on. And uh, it's really mysterious, but also amazing to see this because it was hidden before my eyes the whole time. Well, this is your host, Derek Lambert. And uh, until next time, God bless you. Have a good day. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.